Well, good morning, church. Uh, I'm glad that you've managed to make it uh, on such a rainy day. It's very unusual that it rains here, but I know that I don't have to wash my car next week, so that's pretty good. Uh, It is certainly a real blessing and a privilege to be um, standing here and bringing you a message from God today. Uh, I was going to say, I don't know who's more nervous, Gareth, for my, uh, Pastor Gareth, for myself, uh, because maybe he's wondering what I'm going to say, but at least, you know, we've been through it together, so he, he knows. Uh, but again, I just would like to extend my thanks to Pastor Gareth and the elder body for having the confidence in me to be standing here and uh, preaching the message today. Um, so I wonder if you've ever said these words to yourself, I would never do that. Now, I know I've said it countless times, and there's four particular occasions that I would like to share with you today. The first time was when I was growing up, I said to myself, I'd never get married. (laughs) I'd see married couples all around me arguing and fighting with each other, and I thought to myself, who would want to do that, you know? I'd rather live by myself and enjoy my own company. You know, who would rather, who would want to do that? The other time was when I said to myself, I never work in a hospital. You know, during my teenage years, while I was at school, I fell over and uh, dislocated my elbow, which was a very painful experience. But the teacher rushed me over to the hospital, and while I was lying in the emergency department, I just recall uh, smelling that sterile environment, and I thought to myself, no way, I will never work in a hospital. Another occasion was after church, the priest at the time said to me, Robert, I can see you becoming a priest. I can see you preaching the word of God from the pulpit. I said, no way. I would never do that. (laughs) You see, growing up, I was a very shy and introverted person. And just talking in front of two or three people would send my anxiety level skyrocketing. I said, no, that's not for me. And the last occasion that I can recall was when my wife, my daughter, and myself were stranded in Dubai and uh, because of the ash cloud. And I thought, who would ever want to work in such a hot and dry country? I would never do that. <laughs> so here I am, friends, he's standing in New Life Church in Abu Dhabi, a married man, a family man, earning my keep in a hospital and bringing you the word of God from the pulpit. So as Brother Pedro always says, he always reminds us, God is good. And all the time, amen. So this morning we'll be taking a break from the series of Luke, and we'll be examining God's word from the book of Hebrews. So I'd like you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at uh, verse number 1. And we'll be reading all the way through to verse number 19. So if you have your Bibles with you, beginning at verse number 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, as more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, 
but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned? Those bodies fell in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to give you thanks and praise for this blessed day that you have given us. We thank you for the rain that you've sent us and for giving us your word, the Bible, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit enlighten us this morning and give us the wisdom and the knowledge that we need to interpret this passage. And we pray that we may use it to transform our lives so that we may become better servants for your kingdom, for your glory. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart always be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So on the 1st of June, 2002, news broke that vessels Johannes Hansi Cronier was killed in a plane crash. His scheduled flight home from Johannesburg to George was grounded as he hitched a ride on a turboprop aircraft with two other pilots. Unfortunately, near George Airport, the pilots lost visibility and the plane crashed into the Otoniko Mountains, killing all three of them instantly. Hansi was 32 years old. It was only two years prior to this that he was banned from any involvement in cricket following the King Commission inquiry. It was revealed that he was involved with a betting syndicate that led to match fixing. It was devastating news to the South African public. You see, Hansi was a highly, was a highly respected captain of the Protea cricket team an all-rounder who could bat, bowl, and field in literally any position. And yeah, he was caught cheating. He seemed to have everything in life, a wife, fame, fortune, 
And I recalled in an article that was written, he said the following. In a moment of stupidity and weakness, I allowed Satan and the world to dictate terms to me. He confessed, the moment I took my eyes off Jesus, my whole world turned dark. I wonder how many of us can relate to this. I know I can. There was a long period in my life where I took my eyes off Jesus. I was lost. My compass seemed broken. Uh, and I took my hands off the wheel, so as to speak. But I want to explore the book of Hebrews today as it was a very significant book that reminded me of the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ and the warning of what happens when we take our eyes off Jesus. So if you're taking some notes today, my sermon is divided into three parts. The first part is where the writer is comparing Jesus to Moses and he encourages us to consider Jesus higher than Moses. This is in verses 1 to 6. My second part is the challenge to the readers to remain faithful to Jesus as he provides a warning against the rebellion. And this we can see in verses 7 to 17. Yeah, he cites the words from Psalm 95, which Sajun read for us this morning, which describes the wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness and warns them not to rebel against the living God. Thirdly, he presents the readers with the consequences of the rebellion, and this can be found in verses 18 to 19. He warns them that they will never enter God's rest if they rebel against God. Now, in order to understand the passage today, we need to put it into some context. As Todd Friel would say, text without context is pretext. It's meaningless. It doesn't have any meaning. So we know that the book of Hebrews was probably written between 67 to 69 AD approximately. And this was prior to the destruction of the temple. But we don't know who the author is. However, we know that the author had a relationship with the disciples who themselves were followers of Jesus. So we can see that, yeah, the teaching is grounded in the teachings of Jesus. Now, Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, or Luke are suggested authors. But in all honesty, the Bible scholars don't know. But ultimately, we know that the Holy Spirit was the author of this book. So here, the writer appears to be addressing the Hebrew community as he references the history of the Hebrew nation and their religion, and this includes the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system. He makes many Old Testament references and doesn't mention the Gentiles or their pagan practices. So one can conclude that he is addressing the Hebrews, those who were converts to Christ's message, and those unbelievers who may have heard the message of salvation, but not yet made the commitment in faith in Christ. But one thing we know for certain is that the church at that time was facing immense trials and tribulations. The Jewish Christians were being persecuted and even imprisoned for their belief in Jesus Christ. I'm sure many of them must have thought to themselves about returning to their old Jewish faith. Jesus' teachings didn't line up with the teachings from the Jewish rabbis. They probably asked questions like, was Jesus really the Messiah? Did following him mean that they had to give up their old familiar forms of worship? And would it be wrong to go back to their old beliefs and traditions? 
And did it make any sense to follow Jesus when it would just lead to harsh persecutions and punishment? So this explains the purpose of the letter, where the author uh, deals with his doubts by demonstrating to the leaders that Christ was superior to the Jewish law, and he urges them to hold onto their newfound faith. We can see in this book he makes several comparisons, because in chapters 1 and 2, he compares Jesus to the prophets and the angels. In chapters 3 and 4, he compares Jesus to the, uh, Moses and the promised land. And in chapters 5 through 7, he compares Jesus with the priests and Melchizedek. And in the final chapters, he compares Jesus with the sacrifices and the covenant. And the writer here explains to us, the reader, that Jesus is the ultimate power and authority throughout the universe. That he is the full revelation of God to us. In other words, Jesus is God. He is the one who can forgive our sins. Now the letter also comes here with a warning. As the writer warns the readers about the consequences of rejecting salvation offered by God. He reminds them though of the blessings promised by God to the faithful followers in Jesus Christ. So let us just delve more deeper into the book now that we put it into context. We can see in chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, he starts off by saying, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So we notice in this particular passage, he is addressing the believers of the Jewish community because he refers to them as holy brothers and sisters. Holy in the fact that they were set apart for God and identified as citizens of heaven rather than the citizens of the earth. Notice how the author also begins the chapter with the word therefore, which means for that reason. So we need to look back to the previous two chapters to find out why we should consider Jesus. I like the New International Version because it commands us to fix your thoughts on Jesus. This is a common theme throughout the book, and please, I don't want you to miss this. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. In chapter 1, by, in summary, the author clearly states that Jesus is the Son of God, and He is the exact representation and the essence of God. In other words, Jesus is God. In chapter 2, the writer uses four specific terms to describe Jesus. Notice how he uses the word king, the word pioneer, the word brother, and the word high priest. So Jesus was the first to initiate, to lead, and to prepare the way of salvation. Jesus is our forerunner. Here, the author is showing us how supreme Jesus is, but he also shows us the human side of Jesus. Now have a look in chapter 2 in the last verse at 18. The writer here tells us in verse 18, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So here the word tempted indicates Christ's humanity in that he was also subject to temptation. But Jesus is able to understand and sympathize with us as well. So we serve a God who is personal, 
who wants to have a relationship with us. And we can confirm this because if we look just one chapter ahead in chapter 4, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Notice again the author is using the word the high priest again. And this he uses several times in the book. The writer is urging the reader to fix your thoughts on Jesus. Observe the superiority of Jesus, but also look at the humanity of Jesus. Now let's continue in, in chapter 3, where now he tells us that Jesus is greater than Moses as he compares the positions held by each of them. So my first point here, consider Jesus higher than Moses. Now that is quite a statement to make, isn't it? The name Moses appears almost 800 times and in over 30 books of the Bible. His name is right up there, up there with Abraham and Elijah. He's also the author of the first five books of the Bible. He's the same man who was a man of great faith and courage as he followed God, a man who was self-giving, humble, and willing to take wise counsel from God and others. The same man who in Numbers, if we look in Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8, where the Lord says, When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. He spoke to Moses face to face. Moses is the same man who had been given the commandments and the rituals of the law by God. He's the same man who had been sent by God to deliver the Israelites from Egypt and lead them through the wilderness to the promised land. He's the same man who was responsible for overseeing the tabernacle for the Jewish nation. The same man who the Jewish nation hold in high regard and superiority. And yet, yeah, the writer is saying Jesus has been found more worthy, greater honor than Moses. In verse 2, the author states, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. In this context, the house refers to people of God rather than a dwelling place or a building. Both Moses and Christ accomplished their mission to care for God's people, but Moses was only a part of this God's house. He was a mere servant of the house, whereas Christ was the creator of this household. The writer also refers to Christ as God's son over God's house, a position which Moses can never achieve. Look in verses 5 to 6. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The author continues in his letter by saying, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So prior to the warning, 
he's stating that the person who abides in Christ is the one who shows genuine membership in the household of God. The person who perseveres in faithfulness to Christ, not the person who wishes to return to the old rituals of the Levitical system, whereby salvation is dependent on their own works, not in Jesus Christ alone. So our hope should rest in Christ alone, whose work has accomplished our salvation. Now friends, let's just pause there for a minute and consider the implications here for us at New Life Church. The author speaks of hope, and I would like you to consider who is your hope in? Or what is your hope in? So you see, we also live in a wilderness type of environment, in uncertain times where no one knows what disasters are awaiting around the corner. Is your hope in your job, your money, your possessions, your assets, or even your spouse or your children? Wives, is your hope in your husbands? Husbands, is your hope in your wives? And he has also a message for the youth. Is your hope in your friends, your teachers, or even a well-known superiority, or even your parents? Well, children, guess what? Your parents are not perfect. They're also human. They're also fallible. Now, children, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't or disobey your parents. What I'm saying is don't put your eternal hope in them. Or is your hope in a celebrity? Do you spend countless hours following Beyonce or Kim Kardashian or even Dina Taylor on Instagram? You know, growing up, I used to idolize Hansi. I loved playing cricket. And when I watched, the TV or, uh, on the, when I watched him on the TV or in the cricket stadiums, I used to go wild. You know, people actually thought I looked like him. <laughs> okay, picture me about 30 kilograms lighter with more hair on my head, then maybe you might see a bit of a resemblance. But when I found out he was caught cheating, I was really devastated. But you see, he was only a man just like Moses was only a man. So brothers, the point, brothers and sisters, the point I'm trying to make here is our hope should be in Jesus Christ alone, not in anyone or in anything else. You will also be disappointed if you put your hope in other idols. The author is commanding us to fix our eyes and our thoughts on Jesus, to place our hope and our trust in him. Think of the person you love the most in your life. Is it not true that that person occupies your thoughts? The same should be true when it comes to Jesus. We heard recently how Mary and the shepherds were pondering over the good news of the gospel. Yeah, the writer of Hebrews is telling us to do the same thing. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Consider Jesus. Think of his rank, his dignity, his holiness, his sufferings, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his intercession. Think of the character and the work of the Son of God. Jesus is so, far superior than any other worldly substitute. Think of the promises he has made to his children so that you may learn to bear trials, that you may be kept from apostasy, so that you may live a holy life worshiping the Creator, not waste your time worshiping created things. Jesus is superior and worthy of all our praise and our adoration. My second point here, look at the warning against the rebellion. 
the author states the words from Psalm 95. Now David composed Psalm 95 for the festival of the tabernacles or the booths, whereby the Israelites remembered God's provisions for them in the wilderness. In the first part of the psalm, notice how the people are called together to worship the Lord. But in the second part, they are warned of the dangers of rebelling against God. The Jews were in danger of missing the promised rest, entering the promised land. So notice the author of Hebrews repeats these verses 7 to 11. And, uh, and again, look how he uses the word today. He repeats this three times, and we know when there's repetition, there's emphasis. And it is used to indicate the present moment. In other words, the readers should listen to God's voice as a sense of urgency, not to wait on it, to act on it while it is still fresh in their minds. He says, look at verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So despite God's miraculous works and his provisions for them in the wilderness, the Israelites still failed to commit themselves in faith to him. They had the presence of the living God in their midst. They had a leader who spoke to God face to face. Yet, they still chose to worship idols. They doubted the supremacy and they put their faith in idols. So let's look in verse 12 where he continues. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Yeah, the author is providing a warning, just like the psalmist is, but I believe he's addressing the unbelieving Jewish brethren, those who were in the presence of holy brothers and sisters. He warned them not to repeatedly reject the gospel of Christ, which would harden their hearts. You see, the Hebrews deceived themselves into thinking that by rejecting Jesus, they were being faithful to their old system. They used all types of sins and excuses and lies into this false way of reasoning. The fact that they were willing to hang on to their old ways meant they were rejecting the living God. They were moving in the opposite direction to God. They were choosing the path of unbelief. Thomas Watson said once, A hard heart is a dwelling place for Satan. As God has two places he dwells in, heaven and a humble heart, so the devil has two places he dwells in, hell and a hard heart. Church, we really need to sit up and take notice here. We all know of people who are like this, family, friends, colleagues, those who constantly sin, who reject the gospel of Christ and whose hearts have been hardened. And sin can be so deceiving because you think that you are getting away with it, but all the time, all the thing that you are doing is you are hardening your heart. The writer is urging them to be saved and to believe before it is too late. So we too need to urge unbelievers 
to do the same thing, for tomorrow is not promised to everyone. The principles here can also easily be applied to believers. Even if you call yourself a Christian and have been playing with or even entertaining sin, be careful. A hard heart is that where the conscience is seared and where the truth makes no impression. The idea here is that a refusal to listen to the voice of God is connected with the hardening of the heart. So Christians, protect your heart, protect your thoughts. Make sure that when you come to church that your heart is teachable, that you're ready and willing to listen to the truth of God's word with interest. Be willing and ready to let other believers exhort and encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Don't allow your heart to get bored listening to the truth. So notice how the author's response here is to stir up and exhort the readers to encourage one another, individually and corporately, especially when they were tempted to return to their old, ineffective Levitical system. Have a look in verse 13, where he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, he is using the word today as a sense of urgency. And here I believe he is addressing everyone, unbelievers and those believers who were being tempted to turn away from the gospel. You see, he's encouraging people to meet together daily. This has implications for us here at New Life Church. We need each other. We need to be in the habit of meeting regularly and encouraging one another. This is our duty, and as the passage says, we need to be doing it daily, just not once a week on a Friday. That is why home groups are so important. So we can build meaningful relationships with each other, so we can tenderly and confidentially exhort and admonish each other, not to be deceived by sin. Are the reasons you're not coming to home group better than the reasons the Bible is giving us. Church meetings, as I said, home groups, Bible classes, youth ministry, men's and women's ministry is so important. Next week, remember, we are having a members meeting. It is so vital because we need to make really difficult decisions. We need to understand where the money is going. We need to make decisions regarding the leadership of the church. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to persevere for the good of others and for ourselves to the glory of God. So in other words, whatever struggles we face in church, the Lord Jesus is at work right here. I shouldn't run. You shouldn't run. We should stay and help each other in this race. Church membership is also so crucial because we are saved into the body of Christ. We are not saved to live our lives alone without the input and encouragement of the local church. We need each other like fish needs water. So I would like just to illustrate this point a little bit more by describing the huge redwood trees in California. They are amazing. 
They are the largest living things on earth and the tallest trees on earth. For some of them are as high as 300 feet and more than two and a half thousand years old. You would think that trees that large would have a deep root system, reaching down deep into the earth, but this is not the case. Redwoods actually have a very shallow root system, only about four to six feet deep and no taproot. However, the roots of these trees are intertwined and they're tied in with each other. They are interlocked. Thus, when the storms come and the winds blow, the redwood still stands. With an interlocking root system, they support and sustain each other. They need one another to survive, and so do we. Because of this, God has given us His church, the body of Christ, on this earth. We come, when we come to faith in Jesus, the Bible teaches us that we are baptized into Christ. And all those who were baptized into Christ are also baptized into the family, the body of Christ, the church. God does not intend for us to exist as lone ranger Christians, but in fellowship together with other believers. We need one another as it doesn't go well when we are alone. So let's get back to this passage. The writer continues with the rebellion theme where he uses four specific key words. He uses the word rebelled, the word sin, the word disobedient, and the word unbelief. Now this leads to my third and final point, which is the consequences of the rebellion. It even starts in verse 11. So if you have a look in your Bibles in verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And again, in verses 18 and 19, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now when the writer refers to rest, I wonder what comes to your mind. I'm pretty sure in our day-to-day conversations with one another, we get wrapped up in the busyness of our lives. We seem to be always doing something or going somewhere. Our days appear to be consumed with social media. You know, Do you spend hours scrolling through Facebook or Pinterest or binge-watching Netflix or YouTube videos? It never seems to uh, uh, ease up. It's almost like we wear busyness as a badge of honor or seems to show how important we are. If you are not busy doing something, then maybe something is wrong with us. We seem to define ourselves on how busy we are. We are restless people. I wonder if you can identify with this. I'm sure you can. So what does a restful day look like to you? Is it lying on a beach, reading a good book, watching a movie, or maybe watching your favorite TV show, or is it just hanging out with a few friends? So when we refer to rest here, we're not just talking about taking some time out. The rest here is really referring to the rest that truly restores the body and the soul. The rest that only God can provide. Now remember, the writer of Hebrews is addressing the reader through Psalm 95. And because of their rebellion and in 
entire generation of Israelites was prevented from entering the promised land, entering the rest that was their inheritance. They were being delivered from a life of slavery, torment, and torture, earthly, physical rest. But there is another type of rest that we can speak of, which is the spiritual rest. At salvation, every believer enters this true rest. Rest from the knowledge that righteousness is not achieved by our own efforts, but only achieved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. This rest includes His peace, as we can rely on His strength and not our own strength. We are secure in the knowledge of our salvation and the assurance of our future heavenly home. Jesus spoke on more than one occasion in the gospel regarding rest. Remember in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29, he says, Come to me all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the rest that only Jesus can provide. So how do we rest in Jesus? For me, the answer is simple. We need to spend time with Him, spend time drawing closer to Him. True friendship is rare on earth. It means identifying with someone in thought, in heart, and in spirit. This is the relationship we need to have with Jesus. We need to fix our thoughts on Him. You know, we receive His blessings and we know His Word, but do we really know Jesus? I like the way Oswald Chambers puts it when he says, You no more need a day off from spiritual concentration on matters in your life more than your heart needs a day off from beating. Just think about that for a second. Let me repeat that. You no more need a day off from spiritual concentration on matters in your life than your heart needs a day off from beating. He continues to say, As you cannot take a day off morally and remain moral, neither can you take a day off spiritually and remain spiritual. God wants you to be entirely His, and it requires paying close attention to keep yourself fit. It also takes a tremendous amount of time, yet some of us expect to rise above all our problems going from one mountaintop experience to another with only a few minutes' effort. So I'd like to close with a story that occurred during World War II. The Allied planes were coming back to England after flying over enemy territory only to find that the English fog had moved across the airfields and they had no way of landing. Many lost their way and died in the process. This deeply disturbed the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill and he instructed his scientists to fix the problem. They protested and told him they had already experimented and run many trials, but it was impossible to remove the fog. Churchill, hating the loss of life, insisted that the fog problem be solved. He wouldn't take no for an answer. So he simply issued a three-sentence instruction that basically said, fix it. 
After many trials, in July 1943, in the midst of a terrible fog, the machine for dispersing the fog was switched on. After about seven minutes, the fog was dispersed over the airport. Turn it off, and the fog returned. Turn it on, and the fog dispersed. The machine used all the power of a small power station, but it worked. It was calculated shortly after the war that tens of thousands of Allied airmen's lives were saved by this device. You see, the airplane needs its airfield, but the fog will conceal it. A Christian needs Jesus, but the fog of the confusing secular signals given out by this sinful world will conceal Jesus, and many people are losing their way and are lost because they lose the sight of the author, the perfecter of their faith. Salvation hasn't changed, friends. The landing strip is still there. But the fog is also a factor which will never go away. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need help doing it. So in summary, please consider Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Do not harden your hearts. Take care, exhort one another, and be willing to be exhorted. And may Jesus receive the glory from New Life Church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word has made known to us the things of the kingdom today. Thank you for your faithfulness by sending us your Son, who has the supreme authority over the heavens and the earth. Forgive when we get distracted by the trappings of this evil world. When we walk in darkness, may we fix our thoughts and our hearts on him daily. So we walk in the light. Show us how to apply what we have learned in the service to our daily lives. Help us make wise choices throughout the week for the glory of your name. May we be able to sift through all that we have learned today so that we can walk in your ways. Father, give us wisdom that leads to love and to faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.